0: A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Danielle is an expert in confrontation and helping people
1: get better at it. Danielle, welcome.
2: Uh, thank you. I'm I'm excited to be here and have this great conversation with you this morning. I, I,
1: I think it'll be fun. Um, you know, in, in a world that seems to be all confrontation, um, being able to talk a little bit about it in a positive light versus all the negative that we see, I, th- I think this can be helpful for for so many listeners.
2: I agree with you, and and uh, it's funny because we'll get into this, but my my definition of confrontation. Is actually different than the whole world is involved in confrontation right now, and I can tell you that there's a there's a very little confrontation going on right now based on my definition.
1: Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. But before we get to any of that, um, how yeah. does one become an expert at this? Right? I mean, so so this is the the point where you get to share your life story from from when you were a little kid or whatever. I mean, you know, I really would love to know how, how do you become the expert. At helping people with confrontation.
2: How did I become the extra? So, yeah. I, I think that I had a head start um, in that I was always a pretty direct person, and being direct is a huge part of my definition of confrontation. So, I'll just start off by saying that my definition of confrontation is to deal directly with someone or something you've been avoiding out of fear. It entails speaking up, being direct not shying away from difficult conversations, asking questions, things like that. So I always... Pretty much, I never had a problem asking questions. I'm really curious, so I had a really strong need to know. And um, if I were in, if I was in a room with somebody or in a meeting, I would ask. I would raise my hand, and was always kind of confused about why people would thank me for for asking a question when I was just asking a question. And um, so I kind of grew up in a house where I wasn't stifled, and um, I did have a crazy. Narcissistic parent um, who had no filter. Uh, she said everything she wanted to say, but she didn't tell us we couldn't. So I think that I was kind of in boot camp in that way. Although I do have a filter, and uh, and so um, I, I just I was never told to shut up, and um, and I mean I'm sure I was told to be quiet, but uh, but uh, but then um, you know what happened so I would say like I was a good 80, 85% comfortable with being assertive and direct and, and all of that. But there were times when I wasn't, and I always wondered about that. Why, what are the, what are the variables that, that were there? And some of it was authority. If you have authority issues, it's going to be harder. Sometimes a lot of people have that at work um, or in life. And, um, and and then when I started to do kind of a deep dive into this, this rebrand that I did and creating this niche, I realized that the kind of secret sauce is uh, not being concerned with what someone says back at you. So once I realized that everything that everybody says back at you is about them and their opinion, then I was, you know, I was good. I was like that, that last 15%, we got it. I have it down now. So that's kind of a very abridged story of how I got here.
1: Well, and so you didn't, I mean, obviously you didn't start with your coaching and consulting practice. What what, what was your profession? Where, where did, you know, where did you go and what caused you to decide to actually turn this to your profession?
2: Um, so I did, you know, what most, what a lot of people do. I I went to school and I graduated and I, I went into the corporate world and I worked in the least corporate, uh, environments. I worked in beauty. I worked in music. I worked in fashion. Um, and I pretty much hated it. And, uh, and then I had a, I had a, I didn't like the, I didn't like the, the, the power dynamic and how, nothing's ever seemed to get done and they weren't really interested in what you had to say, unless you were the top person. And yeah. um, I mean, I don't know if I knew that at the time, but I'm looking back at it now. I had my own business. I was a jewelry designer for five and a half years and it was bad timing. It was the recession and, and it's not a good time to sell a nice to have. Um, and then I went back and I had a sales career, which I think was really important in my development, both as a person and, as a business owner and then what happened was I took my final job for money which is never a good idea and I lost that job and I thought why don't you give yourself a minute to figure out what is right for you and just intuitively I just chose to get my certification I had never worked with a coach before and I thought I would be good at it and I thought it would be good for me and I was right on both so that's how I got here
1: fear is, is really really strong and in a world where um, it's again so easy to throw stones why even have a conversation
2: well without a conversation nothing changes and you know that you know if we talk about what's going on in the media or in social media um, what's interesting about that is that it's all pretty negative and it's all, Uh, safe because you're writing something and the only thing that's going to come back at you is someone else commenting on your comment. And there's a freedom that people have, I think, to express this anger that they have and there's no resolution ever. And I don't think the point is resolution, but if you are having a conversation with someone and you're able to learn how to talk about whatever it is you wanna talk about, you can actually understand another person's point of view, they can understand your point of view, and there can be a resolution and and the anger can subside. And and, and I just think the more communication, actual communication, not blaming people, not calling people names, um, that it could calm the society down a little bit.
1: Yeah, it would be nice. Um, you know, listening to you, it makes me wonder. I you know, I'm I'm almost wondering if people are enjoying wallowing in this to some degree. Do do people not want to have a conversation because they just assume to stay in the right?
2: I mean, I think it's complicated. I think that there is the the fear of of having an actual conversation because one of the things, as I said earlier, one of the things that that um that makes people scared of having a conversation, which is confrontation, right? Is um, is the fear of what someone's going to say back at you, or the fear of sounding stupid, or saying the wrong thing? And and I think that so many people at an early age are taught not to, to say anything, or or you know that there's a right way to say something, that 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 they don't say anything, and now they have this freedom. To say all of this stuff on paper, or on or typing it out, and that and that it's all just an aggrieved kind of like it's just negative stuff, and and, and so I think that the fear is, is is squashed because they're not responsible for what they say. If that makes sense, like they don't. There's no accountability.
1: Yeah, and there doesn't have to be, and it's easier right. if there's no accountability, right? Right, right. They, they don't they have don't to have- think twice, and yet it's one. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say, it's one of the most important things you can do for somebody else is, is is be open and honest, right?
2: Yeah. And, you know, when you're open and honest, what that does is that makes you authentic and that breeds trust. You know, I am very authentic and I'm one of those people that my entire life people have spoken about all these things that are, that are somewhat private. And I didn't know that was unusual. That was just my life. And, and it was because I think that I am candid and that by me being candid, I'm giving you permission to be comfortable with that because I'm starting it. And, and I think that that it's really important that and, and the fear just goes away. And people have said, you know, I've never talked this way to anyone in my life. And I and I'm like, yeah, I know I'm, I'm that person who uh, who will allow that. But I think that it would be so there's just so much people need people need to feel heard and seen. That is a primal need and connection is primal. It's 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 one of the, it's the most important thing. And we don't have that right now.
1: Yeah. You know, if, if I think about like in our world, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Patrick Lencioni or any of his work, but um, five dysfunctions of a team, which is, you know, for a lot of business I work with, it's a core piece. We, we leverage it. And if you think about building a highly functional team, he says, trust is at the basis of everything because without trust, you can't engage in healthy conflict. You can't, you can't have those dialogues. But to be to to get to that point of trust, people have to be willing to be vulnerable, right? So invulnerability right. is a sign that the dysfunction exists. But but this concept of being vulnerable and and that's actually a hard concept for a lot of people to swallow, especially in the business place. It's like, well, if I'm vulnerable, that means somebody can attack me, somebody can take me down. So it's already an indication of of there's no trust. But it's funny how in in a one-on-one situations, how many times I've had People just—I mean, literally—in a couple of questions, they've poured their whole soul to me, and 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 I've had other, you know, other coaches say, "How do you do that? How do?" You? Well, it's just simple—you go, you be vulnerable with them, and give them a space that's safe for them to be vulnerable with you. I think people really do want that, but they have this wall up all the time, and I—and it's got to use a ton of energy to maintain that wall. Now, do you have any structures? So, so one of the things about coaching and a lot of the coaching um, uh, schools, for lack of a better term they will teach you to build structures for, for people. And, um, and I don't know if that was part of your particular education or not, but um, do you have, obviously you've got a structured program, but when somebody has to then go and confront um, another individual on something, get into a conversation, um, how do you coach them to, to start that conversation? How do you coach them to, to, to get them in an open way?
2: Well, one of the things I do. <clears throat> so I'm not as structured, I think, as other coaches are, because everybody. I mean, we're all the same, but we all have you know different styles. But but um, one of the things that I help people with is how to start conversations. And so you'll hear, I'll hear that I have to have this conversation, but I don't know how to start. So I'll say you should say that. So what I say is. Yeah if you're talking to somebody, you could say, listen, there's something that I really want to talk about. I'm not sure how to start. So if you could just bear with me while I fumble my way into it, I would greatly appreciate that. That's an example. And so what you're doing is you're asking for help. This other, please help me. Let me find my way. You're disarming that person. Because now they're just going to wait until you get to the point they don't really know what that is, and you're also giving yourself permission to not be perfect. So there's this pressure that's taken off, yeah. and um, and it, it 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 gives them a plan. You know, the thing that you're going to say isn't the thing you want to talk about. It's the thing that's going to get you to the thing you want to talk about. Got it. So that's one that's one thing, and and asking for help is always a really good thing. If you can do that as a coach, you also know that asking if I can make an observation is another way to to be able to kind of get yourself into it. So if you've just said something to someone and you're in it, you're not like trying to start a conversation, but you're already, you got triggered, they got triggered, whatever it is. And you go, do you mind if I make uh, an observation? No one ever says no. And then you can go, well, I just said this thing that I didn't think was a a big deal. And I saw that you kind of reacted in a, in a really emotional way. I'm wondering what just happened. Yeah. So when you use the word wonder or you, you know, it's, it's just kind of like, I'm just wondering.
1: Yeah. The power of the English language is, is it's very, very strong. Right. And, and the, the simple way of doing things, you know, the the words that we use, having the right words. I, I once, you know, coached somebody, and and I've coached actually a lot of people on this that that when asking questions, don't use the word why, because why is it you know triggers defense <laughs> mechanisms, right? It Absolutely. it moves from dialogue to monologue at that point because people go into defending what they're doing, you know. Use utilize things that are expansive, et cetera. So our our language is very very important, Danielle. Um, you know as we talk about confrontation, there are also lots of different styles. I mean, we've, we've got a lot of cultural differences, a lot of different um, ways people approach it. And, and even men and women can be quite different in their styles, uh, you know, throughout your coaching, what have you discovered? Are, are, is there a lot of similarity? Is there a lot of difference And how might you coach them differently?
2: Um, yeah, there's a lot of different, well, I'll start off by saying that, that um, depending on the topic, you um, I would say that more women need help with learning how to be more assertive than men because men are raised to be assertive. Women are kind of raised in an antiquated way to be seen but not heard. So there's there's that element to it. And um, men are taught not just to be more assertive but sometimes aggressive, which is not the same thing at all. However, so I'll work with a lot of women um, asking for money asking for a raise you know men will have no problems well most men um when when there was this thing that i saw that barbara corcoran uh once said that the reason why men very often will get a raise versus a woman is because men will when they're told no will ask well what is it that needs to be done for me to get it whereas a woman will go okay when they when they're told no Right. right. so yeah so so basically the the areas that men need more help with our um, personal conversations and you know with their with their, their family or with their partners. And and so that is obviously you know, an area that that women are also in need of that too, but men are especially in need of that. Women, on the other hand, um, are very timid when it comes to any sort of difficult conversation asserting themselves, not all, but, you know, some women will say, I'm really good at it in business, but it's harder for me in personal. And as it turns out, no, not that much better in business than in, uh, than in personal. It just feels a little less threatening to them. And uh, because there's there's sort of, there's less attachment to it from an emotional standpoint. But, you know, a big, big problem for women and I work with women business owners or, or upper level executives who just have a problem asking for more money. That is a big one. And so uh, I talk about money a lot. I mean, money is arbitrary. It's just a number. And it's, the, it's like, I don't know if I'm valuable enough, if what I'm doing. I said, that's not. It's like, what number do you want? You know, there's no like, I don't want them to hire me. If they, I'm like, they're just going to lowball you. It doesn't matter what you
0: say. It matters what you want. It's time to transform your business with the help of the execution culture co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real world advice on culture. Leadership and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts.
1: Evan is the CEO of recruiter.com, an expert in in what's going on in the employment world, if if nothing else, and and, um, how to find great people. Uh, Evan, welcome to the show this morning.
3: Hey, Chris, thanks so much for having me on your show.
1: You know, so, you know, I'd love to spend a lot of time, obviously, talking about what's going on, you know, and and, and the topic of people is so, so big in, in companies right now. But as our listeners know, you know, this show is really about you and transformation and, and you know, how you've helped others. And it always starts with your particular story. You've had a, a great string of success. Nobody becomes a CEO of a company like Recruiter.com just out of the blue, Um And so what what I'd love you to do is to share your story with our,
3: uh, with our listeners this morning. Uh, Sure. Thanks so much, Chris. Um, So you can't, tell what I look like, uh, but I'm uh, not a young guy, uh, 54 years old. Uh, My story is I started my first company in 1989, uh, right out of NYU Business School in mobile computing. So uh, mobile in the 90s does not look anything like you see now. Um, And that's what we did in the 90s in a variety of different industries and segments. Uh, It was a lot of fun, worked with some great Great people, great companies. Uh, grew that company over a decade and we got acquired by Dun & Bradstreet. Um, stayed there for a while, got pulled up by a venture capital company into the secure security industry, spent some time in the security space, eventually with a company that got acquired by uh, what became Symantec. Uh, went back into mobile uh, shortly thereafter with a company that was acquired in the payment space by Verifone. So I spent about a decade in the payment space. Um, And then uh, most recently I was with a company on Silicon Valley. Uh, doing a smart terminal payment space that company got bought by GoDaddy about a year and a half ago. Um, And uh, I I love technology, love platforms really as an operator and a little over three and a half years ago, I got introduced by one of the primary shareholders of what is now recruiter.com to gee, we've got this asset called recruiter.com. What can we do with it? And Recruiter.com. Uh, was a uh, an online media company so a digital online media company so we think of a destination site for all things recruiting related. So salary information, three articles a day, uh, monthly magazine, uh, digital magazine uh, for uh, 3.5 million social media touch points, 48,000 Twitter followers, really huge uh, in that regard. And it made money selling ads to this overall network itself. And my theory was, and uh, with, along with the founders of the company is, Hey, instead of the audience being the, uh, the customer, let's make the audience, the product, and let's make, this audience of recruiters uh a an expert network of recruiters and really capitalizing on their experience to really address what is a giant huge industry which is talent acquisition and that was the original premise um and we've been growing you know really rapidly ever since uh just to give you some numbers we did about two million dollars you know before i joined um about $5 million in 2019, uh, about a little over $8 million in 2020. We did $20 million in revenue in 21, over $20 million in 21, uh, and we're on a you know trajectory for over $30 million this year uh, with a full on-demand platform of both recruiters. So think of us as like Uber for talent acquisition mm-hmm. uh, and then software that helps companies uh, and uh, find talent better, stronger, faster. A little long winded of a story, but that's how I got here.
1: And it's funny how, how many companies, I think, almost see people as a cost. I mean, I, I watch a oh, labor cost. You know, we, we have all these, all these terms that do there. They don't think necessarily in terms of the investment that they're making and, the, and, and how to leverage the people to move forward. It just, in, in a lot of cases, seems like a means to an end. How do you address that?
3: Yeah, I I agree. You know, where the the language has to change. Note that we call it talent, right? It's talent acquisition. It's not fill the seat, right? Right. Let's go get a butt in the seat. Uh, it's not. It's about talent. It's about how do we ensure that we have a steady flow of talent into into coming into our company. You know, how do we do those things? Um, look, I I I think that more than ever, people our companies are recognizing the value of their people, and you realize it because they're leaving faster. Uh, they're leaving at a, a much faster rate than they were ever leaving before. Um, and you know, let's start at the end. Uh, it used to be that if I hired Chris, Uh, I'm done, I don't have to think about Chris for another six months to a year, right? Chris will be for a year, we're done, we're lock and loaded, and next year I'll wait for Chris to come ask for a promotion and then I'll address Chris, right? And if I'm a more seasoned company, okay, we have formal reviews, once a quarter, all these other things. Um, and certainly the sophisticated companies know how to do this far, far better than the less sophisticated companies. But, you know, as a small business owner, just cause Chris, just cause I hired Chris today doesn't mean I'm guaranteed that Chris is going to be here a year from today. And so I need to start thinking the way the bigger companies think. What's the progression? Uh, How do I ensure that I am creating a great environment for Chris? Money just doesn't do it anymore. Oh, I'll just pay Chris more money and that'll be enough. It just doesn't do it anymore. So I, I think there's this recognition and the best way to think about it is these are these are not new things. These are these have always existed. They've just existed at much larger companies and now they have to cascade down to smaller companies. You know, we talk about remote work and oh, it's new, remote and hybrid and all this other stuff, but you know, take your big consulting firms, they've been working with remote environments forever. Right? You know, you didn't want to have people right. in your office, right? Uh, anyone that was, you know, and I come from a sales background, you know, I I would yell at salespeople if I saw them too often in the office, right? You don't belong here. Go out in the field. Be with your customers, etc. So, I, I think that these are not really very new. They're just new to you, or they're new to you know, they're new and a new size of places coming.
1: Well, you know, it's it, it's funny that you say it because you know I look at the organizations that some of them even the larger sites. So, I mean, we work typically with middle market, larger organizations, and. You know, COVID forced remote work on organizations that, quite frankly, should have gone to remote work many, many years ago for a lot of good reasons. You know, I, one, one in which is it expands your ability to, to hire, right? I mean, if, if, if you're only hiring people who are in your area, then you're limited, Yet, how many roles have to be done by somebody that's in your office? Think about how many, how many functions were, quote, unquote, outsourced to Asia and other places. Well, why not outsource to North Dakota, where there's a lot of call centers, or to, to, to certain other places? And save yourself, you know, in some cases, money. Um, you know, if, if you're a California-based company, your, your cost of, of employment is very, very high. Why not utilize some people in other places, And I I never really kind of got that, except that there was this belief that everybody had to be in one place or we couldn't be successful. And, And yet, like you said, there were a lot of people that were not in the office all the time. It was just kind of almost like fooling themselves. When I think about going back to, you know, your original company evolving to today and i think about why people are leaving companies well first of all one of the biggest one of the biggest struggles we're seeing in companies that we work with is communication we hear communication 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 and we're in an age where communication should be better than than ever but with remote work there. You mentioned before that that emails used to be to set up meetings. And and I've often said that the only thing emails are good for are setting up meetings and disseminating minutes. They're not good for conversations. Um, We've got texting today, all these other things. You know, everybody sees these tools as being great. I think that that an, an email or text can be a cop out from you know confronting somebody else about something. How is that contributing to to culture, in your opinion, in in the long run? And how is that maybe affecting some of the the you know the, the people who are quitting that feel like the culture isn't right for them, so they're jumping.
3: Uh excellent question. And but let's let's address the first problem first, and then we'll address the second problem second. So. I think that companies are defining what they want to be when they grow up in a, and I actually believe in a more, in a more distinctive fashion than they were doing five years ago. Uh, five years ago, Chris wanted to work remotely. Evan wanted to be in person. So we had to do something for both people. Right. Um, and you're seeing today, companies say, we are going to be doing X and we are going to be doing Y. And there's something very, they're refreshing about it. You know, you have, you have JP Morgan that says thou shalt be in the office. And then you have Airbnb that says, go work from wherever you want. Now we could sit there and go, Oh my God, I'm never going to work at JP Morgan Chase. Cause I, they, they, want me in the office full time. I, I never want to be there or, Hey, do I really want to work in an Airbnb where I'm not really going to build relationships? Uh, There were great statistics pre-COVID, right? What percentage of your social circles were friends that you made in the office? Um, One of our clients, he had a great line, global head of talent of a major financial institution. And he said, you know, part of the challenge is that my office doesn't change, right? If I'm working remotely, I don't change. The office hasn't changed, my email changes. Mm-hmm. That's just so easy to do. So, you think about all the companies that you and I might have stayed at longer because we liked the people, the commute was great, the coffee was great, their socializing were great, et cetera. Yep. But you know yep. what? I, I heard a podcast a couple months ago of a CEO who was an engineer, and his comment was Look, I surrounded myself with engineers, we worked hard, got our jobs done, and went home to our families. No beer events, no pizza parties, nothing. We were focused on getting the job done. So I, I think the refreshing element here, Chris, is that the companies are now getting to define what they want to do. Look, if you want to, if you want to run a low cost operation, relying on you know post high school, post college people, you're going to have to do it in person because training people who have no experience remotely is very, very complicated. So creative so we started doing like we started seeing companies do like. We were calling it glocal, right? You know, get local, mm-hmm. like, but you're global and local, you know? So we actually had a client that was hiring 100 people in a, a vicinity of a town, right? Everyone was working remotely but I wanted them remote, working remotely in a, let's call it, you know, 15 mile radius of where you live or 20 mile radius of where you live. Why? Well, this way I have, I have a guy in a van who could actually handle the IT. We can get together at a the local Starbucks every couple of weeks. Like there was something very, very interesting about that, right, I'll let you work remotely in a vicinity area. And again, I think companies are gonna be doing you know, interesting things um, in order to really figure that out. And by the way, some people respond really, really well to communication. Some people don't. Some people want to be told, "Go get this done," you know, and then I'll see you once a week. And and I think the companies have this opportunity now to really figure that out. So that's the first part of your question. Yep. The second was really why are people leaving? I I think there's really two big reasons why people are leaving. So, A, there's you know, money and, and quality life, and let's leave that aside for a moment. That's why I left, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the changes that are happening of why people are leaving at a faster rate is that we've actually made it incredibly easy to find a job, right? Uh, you and I grew up in a world where you printed, you found really cool paper to put your resume on, right? We, we actually thought about the stock of the paper. We had to type up a cover letter and, you know, unique to each company and mail it. And if you sent out 20 resumes, that way you were considered crazy. Yeah. Right. Uh, I can't believe you applied to 20 companies. Oh my God. That's amazing. That's incredible. Today, what's applying for a job? Click, 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 Right. We've made applying for a job a one check click out, like buying You know, like buying a t-shirt on Amazon, that's how fast you could apply to a job. So we've made it incredibly simple to apply for a job. What's interviewing today? Like you and I grew up in a world where interviewing, like the interviewing, you you had to put on a, bring a suit to to work. You had to lie to your boss and tell him you had to go to a funeral. Like there was a whole cloak and dagger system involved in that process. Forget about if you had to get on an airplane, what's interviewing today? A 15 minute video screen, piece of cake. Um, if I'm allowing you to work from anywhere, there's no geographic, there's no job that's geographically undesirable anymore. So I've made it so simple for you to find a job. So the expression, Chris, of finding a job as a full-time job would not be invented today. That would not be authored today. In fact, I would tell you that the expression should be finding people as a full-time job. So the only thing, the only thing that kept you at your job, Right. Is the stigma of leaving a job too soon? Uh-huh. The only thing that's been removed. The job hopper economy is here to stay. It was coming fast and furious from Silicon Valley and where a lot of things originate. So if you saw if you saw a resume of a of, of someone who in twelve years worked at four companies in Silicon Valley, you would say that must be an awesome software engineer. That must be such a talented person. In fact, if the opposite is also true, if you saw a software engineer that was at one company for twelve years and it wasn't Facebook or or Microsoft or Google, you would say, uh, "Wow, that person's probably stale." What's yes. wrong with that What's person? With so that has now moved to the rest of the world, uh, certainly the rest of the U.S. In fact, you know, you and I had parents that said, "Suck it up." You got to stay there for at least three years, at least four years, your first job. Don't, you don't want to look like you left out. Millennials now, a statistic came out, 60% of no problem leaving a job within the first six months. I saw an article uh, about a month ago, Chris, that said 25% of the people in this survey of millennials that they were serving would rather quit their job to no job than work at a job they didn't like. Mm-hmm. Incredible. These are just incredible things. So why are people quitting jobs? Because they can't.
0: It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better, grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership and execution. See you there. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. Today I've got uh, Linda
1: uh Linda Grattan joining us. She is a, a professor, a psychologist, been in the the you know, been helping companies, big companies out most of our career, if not all of it um, considered probably one of the leading thinkers in the world on the future of work. And, you know, given all the changes that we've been through the last couple of years, I think it's timely that we have you on the show. Welcome, Linda. I'm glad to have you.
4: Thank you very much, Chris. Very happy to be with
1: you. So, um, you know, your resume alone, I'd probably take the entire show just trying to to, to explain that. Um, And, as somebody who has become as, as renowned as you have related to, you know, the workplace cult and culture um, and where where the workplace is going, uh, we always start our segments, as, as you know, and we've talked, and, as our listeners know, is a little bit of kind of like your life story. You know, how does one become the expert in this particular <laughs> field? You know, uh, and, you know, your story in particular, I think is very, very interesting. So I wonder if you go ahead and share it with our audience. <laughs>
4: Well, thank you, Chris. Um, I guess you know fundamentally, I'm a psychologist. In fact, I would even say I'm a, a humanistic psychologist. Um, what I mean by that is that I basically think that people are good. They try the very best they can, and the role of an organisation, therefore, is to help people become the best they very, you know, the best they can be. And I guess for me. I'm an occupational psychologist. My PhD is in occupational psychology. In fact, actually, Chris, it was in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But the reason I got so fascinated in work and us as working people, I think looking back is when I was about 16, 17 years old and needed some money, as we all do at that age. Every, every summer, I went to a chocolate factory in the other side of the UK in a place called York. They made some of the great chocolates of that time. And I worked on an assembly line packing chocolates. And I did that for a couple of years, you know, just for six months, six-week segments, because I was still at school and then I went to university. And I think actually standing by... The women because they were all women packing chocolates for six weeks as a 16 year old really helped me understand what work was about it helped me think about friendships and and also how on the face of it this looked like a really terrible job i mean actually i was really bad at it but in fact you know the women gained something from it and they enjoyed it and i think that sort of fascination with work and how we work and how we live our lives around work. I think really, Chris, that's been the most interesting aspect of, of my life, really. I, I'm just sort of fascinated in, in how we work and why we work as we do. And I'm also sort of fascinated in how that relates to families, to communities and neighbourhoods. And I do think it probably started in that chocolate factory in York all those years back you know, I'd love to know more about, about your
1: attitude on, you know, intent and, and the necessity of alignment of values for friendships.
4: Well, I think values are really important. Um, I think actually, you know, one of the, one of the marvels of, of living is to have diverse friends, you know, who come and push you towards thinking in different ways. And so I, I, for example, I've got friends who, are very different from me in terms of my political you know views and background i've got friends who might who you know who's who are more for example commercially focused than i am or more focused on money than i am but i think that that diversity is really important so i don't think for me anyway chris there's you know a tight definition of what is it that I would be prepared to have as a friend in terms of their values? But of course, there are sets of values that I would find more difficult to, you know, to acknowledge or appreciate or to have a friend who had those values. So I think uh, it's a little bit about also the diversity of experience. and, And I felt throughout my life, Chris, that one of the things I love more than anything is traveling. And I've been to so many places. Uh, and, and part of that is because I love seeing people living in different ways, having different sets of values about what's important to them. Take, take Japan, for example, which and it's a country I spend quite a bit of time in, you know, Japanese values about work, for example, or about the role of women. I don't particularly agree with them, but I find it very fascinating that people have, you know, different values than I have. So, for me, I think part of the business of being curious is also to find out that actually people that you really like can have values that are different from yours. Now, I guess what you're thinking, Chris, is but hang on, there are fundamental values where that that are important, and yeah. I'm sure there are. I, I'm I would be struggling to know what those were unless the person was you know i don't know i'm using the word evil in a ridiculous way but you know what i mean mm-hmm. if unless their, their their behavior was out of step with you know normal norms as opposed to my own there's no such thing as good or bad core
1: values i don't hmm. i don't think good and bad plays into this at all i think we make judgments based on our filter system so if 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 i like you um, I might say, you know, Linda's got great core values. And if I don't, I might say she's got bad core values. Well, they're not good or bad. Uh, but there is such thing as good or bad fit when it comes to mm-hmm. relationships. And I mm-hmm. think greater values alignment allow for better fit. And I'd love to mm-hmm. know your thinking. And, and have you done any work on that, you know, with the corporations, the consulting you've done, and even back in the British Airways days?
4: Well, um, I mean, obviously, values are really important in organizations. The the, the values that I'm, I write about the most, I guess, is about cooperation, which is to say, are you, you know, when you move into a situation, are you do you want to compete or do you want to cooperate? Mm -hmm. And and in my view, organizations that value cooperation and also that value innovation are much more likely to succeed. And, you know, I wrote a book, Hotspots, which I then named my consulting practice after, which really was about the power of cooperation as a fundamental value. And it's interesting that the notion of cooperation has played right the way through my, my working career and indeed, I suppose, my personal life as well. The idea that That bringing people together, that asking people to talk about things that are important to them. So, so for example, Chris, one of the, one of the things my uh, consulting practice, HSM, does is that it's, We've built the capacity and, and the technology to, build, to, to bring up to 100,000 people together to talk about an issue that's important to them online, a facilitated conversation. And we've been doing that for about five years now. And I think the, the chance for people across the world to talk to each other about something they really care about and then to build greater insight and cooperation, I think that's a wonderful value.
1: Yeah, it's you know, certainly we know companies. You, I'm sure you've you've experienced seeing where where that's not a value, right? That 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 it's about inner competition and it's all about me and all that and and you know some of them have had some success, but I see others that don't. Um, I I start wondering when I hear things like cooperation from you and you know I hear you know, some companies might say teamwork. They may use some words that are different, but basically the same kind of thing. Um, if it falls into a category called permission to play. so one of the one of the thought leaders I really like is Patrick Lencioni. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. read any of Patrick stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know and he talks about different values. He talks about you know core values are those essential tenants we don't give up on for anything. But then he says there's a, there are some other types of values that can exist in companies and one of them is permission to play. And permission to play is a value that just has to exist, right And so I started <laughs> thinking about things like, integrity as defined by you don't steal, you don't hurt other people, those kind of things. That's, that to me is permission to play. And does that actually operate at even a higher level than a core value? Because you absolutely have to have that value. And I wonder if cooperation Mm -hmm. falls in that category.
4: Mm, Yeah. In fact, actually, when you said permission to play, Chris, I actually thought you meant actual play. Yeah. Um, because I, I'm also very playful, so I would I always want permission to play. I remember, you know, I've been teaching for many years now, and as much as possible, I like my teaching experiences to be playful. I think that we learn most when we're in a playful mode, um, and we learn most when we're open to new experiences. You know,
1: it, it, we we do, and I, I also think that 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 translates to. It translates to just a better, um, uh, how should I say, a better attitude, right? Uh, at the end of the day, people, uh, if, they're, if they're playing, if they're happy, if they're having fun, I think they're in a much more creative state of mind.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. i just spent uh, a week with some of my grandchildren. <laughs> and My husband was amazed at my capacity to play with a two-year-old. Uh, for a long time, because I, I just think play is great. And and the more that people laugh and, you know, eat nice food together and go for walks together, then the more that they can, you know, the more they flourish. And And, and actually, one of the questions we're asking about hybrid work is, as we think about working at home versus working in the office. Could the office be more a place of play rather than just a place where you sit and put your headphones on because it's so noisy and get down to doing your emails? And I I think there is there is an increasing view that the office could be a place of cooperation and play. But that probably means we have to redesign offices and we probably have to think more about the neighborhoods and communities that they sit in. But that's another curiosity for me at the moment, Chris. I'm interviewing People from a, a number of the largest um, uh, architectural firms, just to get a sense of how they think about space and how you think about working, playing in a space.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it, it's really something to think about because how does play look in in places that right now are pretty serious? You know, I, yeah. I, you know, I mean, you've you've seen the psychology, and you know, there are people. You know, I've got clients that are you know, calling people back to work and they don't want to come back to work. And it's like, well, come back or you're fired. I mean, I, I've seen some of that action. Like, what, what are you mm-hmm. doing? You know, why are you going back to this antiquated style? And yet there, mm-hmm. are, there are, and I'm seeing it in the bigger companies in particular, and they, they have a belief, in, and there's probably some truth to it, that the culture is best formed when people are physically together. And there's mm-hmm. so much more opportunity if you can find a way to make it work. And maybe this concept of play is, is really what, what's important here. You know, how do we make it engaging and fun?
4: Yeah, I think, yeah. I I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago uh, who is a senior person in one of the big investment banks in Manhattan. And she said to me, you know, Linda... I have just spent this morning one and a half hours commuting from Connecticut, or I think that's where she was, into Manhattan. And I'm gonna spend another one and a half hours commuting back from my office. And all I've done all day is to sit on Zoom meetings. Why am I here? I said that's a really good question. So I think if we want to entice people back to work, and I think it will be more of an enticement than than a directive then it has to be a place that people feel excited by being in and i think you know the part of the reason i rushed to to write my book redesigning work which is the latest my latest book was that i got the feeling that about now so this is what april 2022 um companies would start to refreeze you know they'd start we've been through the unfreeze uh, a period where they said well let's let, let you know let's just do everything and see how it works and i think they're now beginning to say okay now let's work out exactly what we want to do and i wanted to have i wanted them to have that my book in their hands as they were thinking about that because i think it's such an important question to ask. And and, and and some of the questions I ask in the book are exactly that, which is, you know, what role is an office? What, what, what would happen there that would make people excited about coming back there? What's the role of a home? I mean, frankly, I've loved working from home. I love being part. I live in Primrose Hill, which is mm-hmm. for a, any of your listeners who know London, know it's a really sweet place in London. I'm looking out at the moment on chestnut trees and, and, green, and a bit of green space. So, I think that working from home can also be marvelous. So I think we have an opportunity now to really change the context in which people work so that they can be more, more fulfilled, you know, to be happier, to have stronger relationships and friendships. Thank you for joining Chris Elias
0: for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.